Section six of Edward the Black Prince by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter five Chivalry Part two. Children were taught from their earliest childhood to relish these spectacles. Their very toys were made in imitation of knights jousting. The number of these tournaments led to very great extravagance in dress. Each person wished to excel his neighbor in the magnificence of his attire. The great desire was to appear in something new and astounding, and this led to the most fantastic fashions. Ladies of the first rank and greatest beauty might be seen on these occasions dressed in party-colored tunics, half one color and half another, with handsomely ornamented girdles of gold and silver, in which were stuck short swords or daggers in this masculine attire they appeared mounted on the finest horses they could procure ornamented with the richest furniture party-coloured garments were in great favour men would wear one stocking of one colour the other of another most noticeable among the many extravagant fashions were the trailing dresses which lay in heaps upon the ground in front as well as behind the long and fantastically shaped sleeves trailed also on the ground. A contemporary writer says that tailors must soon shape their garments in the open field for want of room to cut them in their own houses, because that man is best respected who bears upon his back at one time the greatest quantity of cloth and of fur. Edward III himself set the example in these extravagant fashions. In his wardrobe rolls, we find accounts of dresses which were to be worn at tournaments. One was a tunic and a cloak with a hood, on which were to be embroidered one hundred garters, with buckles, bars, and pendants of silver. Also a doublet of linen, having round the skirts and about the sleeves a deep border of green cloth, worked with representations of clouds with vine branches of gold, and this motto, given by the king, it is as it is the festival of the garter was celebrated with great splendour in thirteen fifty one the king wore a robe of cloth of gold furred another of red velvet embroidered with clouds and eagles of pearl and gold each eagle having in his beak a garter with the motto of the order the queen wore a similar robe and the princess isabel wore a red velvet robe embroidered with one hundred and nineteen circles of silk and pearls with trees of silk and gold embroidered on a ground of green velvet, with flowers and leaves. On another occasion we read that a grant of two hundred pounds, equal to three thousand pounds of our money, was made to Queen Philippa for her attire at the festival of the garter. These gorgeous robes were of course exceedingly valuable, and were reckoned amongst the most important possessions of the great people, the black prince disposed by will of the chief of his robes describing them each separately another way in which the royal family and the nobility displayed their grandeur was by their magnificent bed hangings of these again the black prince disposed by will he seems to have possessed many different beds with gorgeous hangings one set of hangings was embroidered with mermaids another with swans and so on gold and silver plate was another favourite article of luxury the city of london made several very handsome presents of large quantities of plate 
both to the king and to the prince but amidst all this apparent luxury we must not forget the other side of the picture the squalor and discomfort in which even the greatest people lived in those days glazed windows were only just beginning to be used the walls of the rooms were commonly bare and only on grand occasions were covered with hangings the black prince we know possessed some splendid hangings one set was embroidered with swans having ladies heads and another was embroidered with eagles and griffins these he used to carry about with him to ornament his hall on great occasions the floors were covered with rushes and were the receptacle of all kinds of filth bones were thrown at dinner on the floor for the dogs who were beneath the table ready to devour them forks were not known and the food was mostly torn in pieces with the fingers wooden platters were largely in use or more often a large slice of bread on which each man would lay his portion of meat at banquets a lady and a knight used to eat off the same plate there were only two meals in the course of the day dinner which took place between ten and eleven and supper at five o'clock the entire household dined together in the great hall the chief ornament of the dinner-table was a massive salt-cellar and the places for the persons of the greatest dignity were always above the salt edward the third possessed among his royal jewels a silver ship which was used to ornament the dinner-table and hold sweetmeats gold and silver ewers were used for washing before and after meat the great hall or dining-room was also the sleeping-room for the servants there were private sleeping-rooms for the chief members of the family each great nobleman had around him a number of officers like a royal court chamberlains chancellors and others besides these he kept in his employ companies of minstrels jugglers and tumblers and players who sang and displayed their tricks for the amusement of the company during their meals travelling companies of minstrels and jugglers wandered over the country giving performances in the various noblemen's houses tregators or conjurers were in high favour there were both male and female tumblers who went about together in companies called gleeman's companies they also amused their audiences with buffoonery of all kinds other men made it their profession to train bears apes and horses to perform tricks the spectators always connected these tricks with witchcraft and supposed them to be done by means of magic theatres did not exist in those days but there were mysteries or miracle plays which formed a great part of the amusement of the people during the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries their origin was no doubt purely religious and their object was to illustrate passages of scripture and teach moral lessons they were performed in churches or on stages erected in the churchyards and the fields and sometimes on movable stages in the streets they were written by monks and were performed sometimes by monks themselves sometimes by members of a trade guild they seem very soon to have lost most of their religious character and to have become little more than a means of amusement for the people to secure this better they degenerated into rather coarse comedies three complete sets of these old mysteries still exist and in all we see the same desire for comic effect which led the authors to take liberties with the text of scripture so as to be able to introduce comic incidents noah's wife is a favourite character and is endowed with a very obstinate temper 
so that noah has great difficulty in getting her into the ark devils played an important part and were represented with horns tails claws and terrible masks everything possible was done to make them awful in the eyes of the children and women masks were much used in the performances the women's parts were acted by men or boys wearing masks the plays as a whole cannot have produced any very serious impression though they were by no means entirely deficient in religious feeling but the comic element predominated and gave rise to the most boisterous merriment we cannot wonder therefore that the preachers and moralists of the day regarded the miracle plays with disfavour and spoke of them in the same way as the puritans of later date did of the theatres these mysteries were exhibited on festivals and holidays another kind of play called ludi were exhibited at court during the christmas holidays these plays were really nothing more than mummeries the appearance of a large number of persons in masks and various comic dresses personifying certain characters and performing dances in thirteen forty eight edward the third kept his christmas at guildford orders were given to manufacture for the christmas sports eighty tunics of buckram of different colours and a large number of masks some with faces of women some with beards some like angel heads of silver there were to be mantles embroidered with heads of dragons tunics wrought with heads and wings of peacocks and embroidered in many other fantastic ways the celebration of christmas lasted from all hallows eve the thirty-first of october till the day after the purification the third february at the court a lord of misrule was appointed who reigned during the whole of this period and was called the master of merry disports he ruled over and organized all the games and sports and during the period of his rule there was nothing but a succession of masks disguisings and dances of all kinds all the nobles even the mayor of london had an officer of this kind chosen in their households dancing was a very favourite amusement it was practised by the nobility of both sexes the damsels of london spent their evenings in dancing before their masters doors and the country lasses danced upon the village green the favourite occupation of the nobility was hunting in the reign of edward the second hunting had been reduced to a science and rules had been established for its practice edward the third was an ardent hunter and all the nobility followed his example even bishops and abbots hunted no more valuable present could be made than a hare-hound or deer-hound in hawking ladies could also take part the careful training of a falcon required great skill and a well-trained bird was most highly prized embroidered gloves were worn on the hand upon which the falcon was to sit when not flying at their game the hawks used to be hoodwinked with elegant hoods they had a bell on each leg and there was a difference of a semitone between the two bells the english ladies led a quiet and secluded life and were celebrated for their skill in needlework and embroidery they used also to amuse themselves with playing at dice and chess and with music they were allowed it is true to appear as spectators at the tournaments and at the time of the foundation of the order of the garter the queen and the wives of the knight founders were received as far as their sex allowed as members of the order End of section six